There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, you guys, this episode brought to you by Scratch Labs, S-K-R-A-T-C-H, labs.com. What makes them different from other companies that make similar products? Well, I'll tell you. They create products that solve problems, which means every ingredient has a purpose. That purpose is to help people perform better. They focus on real ingredients and promote a healthy lifestyle. That means using real ingredients such as fruit, chocolate, nuts, and a balance of nutrients that is best for the body, something not many other brands in their category are doing. Good stuff. Makes you feel good. I have tested it personally. I sometimes get that when I'm trying something new and I get that upset stomach in a race. Haven't had it. Scratch Labs, great stuff. Thank you to Scratch Labs for being a part of the show. Also, thanks to our friends over at Fit for Hope. Fitforhope.com. You got it. You create a goal. You create a fundraising page. Engage your community. Unlock discounts and swag and make your podium speech. Speech. I said speech. Speech. Great, great motivation. Great group. Everything to help get you, help you achieve your goals and help you do it for a great cause. Thanks to Fit for Hope. Fitforhope.com. You guys, let's do a podcast. to the fire and I'm making myself do it. So here we are with a consistency of, I don't know, what is it, like five, six shows in a row? I know. Wow, right? Who'd have thought Pat could stick to anything that focused? Man, it's almost like preparing or training or doing something like that. Well, anyway, quit giving yourself a hard time, Pat. Hey, you guys, welcome to another episode of the Pack Filler Podcast. I am Pat Bulger. 
It might sound a little strange because I'm not actually in the physical studio while I'm recording this intro. The episode itself was recorded in the studio, but this is not because I wanted to get the episode out and it, it it's kind of time sensitive and, and you'll probably see as we get closer and, and once the show actually begins as to why it is so time sensitive. But speaking of things like that, um, first of all, thank you guys for your feedback on all the new styles and the new episodes and the new consistency of the podcast. Uh, we will keep them coming. And I love your feedback, so please uh, keep that coming. Keep uh, subscribing to the podcast. And also, uh, check us out on YouTube. Yes, the video channel is up. The new Bike Towns episode in Bend, Oregon. Wonderful Bend, Oregon. Host of the most recent Cascade Cycling Classic, which looks like it was a great hit. Uh, we went there twice. We got some feedback. We spent some time with some incredible cyclists. And uh, we got to see what it was like to experience Bend and if it truly meets the category of a bike town. You decide for yourself. Check us out on our YouTube channel or go through packfiller.com to check that kind of stuff out. All right. Now, the, the, the immediacy of today's episode. In case you guys didn't know, of course, one of the hardest, most prestigious gravel races in the world, the Dirty Kanza, was happened this very last weekend. I, I don't know about you guys. I wish we could see that. I wish we could, I wish we had a way of of watching the race as it happened. I, I don't know, you know, maybe maybe the experience is not necessarily something that would come through on a TV broadcast. I don't know what do you guys think? Two hundred miles of watching guys just suffer. Well, maybe that would be interesting. Um, but I've been talking to the, today's guest for a couple of weeks about coming on to the show. Um, I've been interested in his story. And it just worked out that um, not only did he participate in the, in the Dirty Kanza, he did the 100 distance, but he also won the Dirty Kanza 100 distance. Um, he's got a world record title on the track, and he's got personality plus, and he was just so happened to be just finishing the Dirty Kanza, and now he's on his way to Trexler Town to go get some velodrome time in and and prepare himself for oh heaven forbid i don't know the next olympics um you know him you've seen him you've you've seen the stash uh bicycling magazine just gave him one heck of a title as the most interesting cyclist in the world yeah no pressure there right you know him ashton lambie um great personality and we had an interesting conversation just happened yesterday i had to actually do some heaven forbid i had to do some editing you guys because Ashton was in his car on a road trip driving to Trexler Town, and um, well, his phone kept kicking out every time he, as he said, every time he went into a valley, we lost cell coverage, and so we lost the phone a couple times. And um, as I always say, many times I don't do editing on these podcasts. I like to give you guys the real experience of everything as it happened, but I had to on this one, and um, that made me think about something. I was talking to Paul after I finished recording the episode, and with the new studio coming soon into effect, as I've promised, we're going to be recording the shows and not only recording them, but broadcasting them live so you can actually hear them as we're doing the, the show. You can participate. You can uh, text us. You can instant message us. And heaven forbid, you will be able to even call in to the show and maybe ask the guests specific things during that time if that is something that intrigues you. Um, but as I was thinking about it, you know, with all those dropped calls and things like that, would that have been an interesting format for the show? Would that have been something that you wanted to listen to, even, you know, pulling back the curtain and revealing the mistakes and, and showing the flaws that might happen in the show as it progresses? Um, is that something that 
that you would be interested in, in being a part of. And if you are, let us know. If you want us to polish up more and get rid of the ums and the yas and the anyways and the pauses and things like that, let us know that, uh, um, as I just say it. I like having the real feel of a show, and I like it sounding like you're on a bike ride with a couple people talking about what they love about cycling. I don't want it to sound all polished and glitzy, and maybe you'd have some opinions on that. So there we go. Let us know what you think. Drop me a note, patrick at packfiller.com. Send us through something through social media and, and tell us what you think and, and what you're liking or disliking about the format of the show. I guess I'm a big boy and I can take it. So there you go. You guys, without further ado, Ashton Lambie on the Pack Filler Podcast. All right, you guys, today's guest, um, I, I hope it's as a compliment that I'm sending it to him. He just doesn't fit the mold, or maybe he does fit the mold. With a career that spans over a few short years and a variety of terrain, his style, speed, and charisma have led him to a world record in the pursuit, gravel distance records, and just recently, in fact, this past weekend, he won the Dirty Cans of 100, just, uh, just to name a few. So let's welcome to the show Ashton Lambie. How are you, man? I'm good. Thanks for having me on the show, Pat. Appreciate no, it. I appreciate it with you. And, and I, I, we said this before I even hit my recorder. First of all, congratulations on the win. And um, what a what a you were saying about your schedule leading up to it and all this kind of stuff. And, and what a great way to kind of, I, I don't know, are we kicking off the gravel season or is we fully into it? Uh, I, I kind of, there's still a few gravel races left, but I kind of count that as like sort of the end of the official gravel season. Okay. Um, for me at least, cause I'm going out right now. I'm actually driving to Pennsylvania, uh, for track racing out in Trexler town, which is like just a big kind of hot spot, oh, yeah. um, for a really high level of racing domestically. That's kind of like a good tune up to get back into it. Um, and prep before national championships, which are the first week of July. Was this your first win at Kanza? Uh, yeah. Well, it's what? only the second time I've ever raced it. Yeah. I think a lot of people just because like gravel is kind of part of my persona. Yeah. Um, everyone assumes you know like I've been doing it since the beginning or like you know this is like my eighth or ninth dirty Kanza, but it's only the second time I've done it. Um, I did the two hundred in two thousand sixteen, and then the last. 2017, 2018, I had uh, some track stuff. 2017, I was out in T-Town Racing. Um, and then 2018, I think we had a team camp that I couldn't uh, get away from. So I was super hyped to be able to make it work again this year. Like, it was awesome going back down there. Um, and had a little bit more downtime this year to do some more gravel stuff, which has been a blast. I love getting back to that. Well, can you tell me a little bit how the race unfolded and how that all came together? I saw a little highlight online saying that you were pushing a 56-tooth front chain ring, which just sounds insane. Yeah. But how did the race go on top of that? Uh, good. I like. I kind of looked at the course, and I felt like it was a, a race and a course that really suited me. Um, I'm not really a big climber, but if you kind of get me out on the flat, um, I can definitely hold it really high, uh, just average speed. And on those gradual rollers, just because, like, I've ridden them for so long, I've got a really good sense of kind of how to uh, meter out the effort to get the maximum speed, to just keep your average speed high. Um, the 56 is just a leftover, like, uh, my coach has had me doing a lot of strength endurance stuff so we can push bigger gears on the track. Yeah. 
So if you're, uh, you know, cruising along at, at tempo um, and trying to maintain 70 to 80 RPMs, like if you're on a 52 chain ring, you run out of gears pretty quick. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so that's the, well, that's why I had the 56. But as far as the race went, uh, the other things I kind of considered were that the way the course was laid out, we were going to run into the back of 200 traffic. Um because we didn't split off from the 200 course until probably 35 miles in. Oh, wow. So I knew that that was going to be uh, not a point of contention, but just something to deal with. And um, and then I also, like, the wind was out of the west, which was sort of like the middle maybe 20 miles of the course. And I the wind kind of picked up throughout the afternoon. And so I wanted to try and get the first half of the course done as quickly as possible. Uh, just to get to that tailwind section. You know, even if I'm a little bit tired through that section, um, it's still easy to keep the average speed high. So pretty much how it went, like, uh, it was, there were a few riders I knew in the 100, and um, there was a, a guy that, you know, took an early kind of flyer off the front, you know, maybe 40 meters out, and I was like, he, you can just, you can kind of tell the way people ride, like, oh, this guy's got gas, or like, yeah, he's just he's just messing around. Like we'll pull him back, and uh, yeah, so we pulled him back real quick, <laughs> and um, and then I kind of took you know a pretty soft dig just to kind of feel the field out and see how everybody was, and kind of floated back in. And uh, I didn't know it at the time, but there was a guy in a uh, Floyd the Leadville kit uh, that was actually Dave Zabritsky. Yeah. And I was just like, <laughs> like after the fact. I, I figured out it was Dave Zabriskie, and I was like, you've got to be kidding me. This is insane. Um, but he, like, kind of looks over at me, and he's like, hey, man, looks like you're kind of marked to win this. And I was like, because I had a couple people following me when I did that dig, and I was like, yeah, man, it really feels like that, you know? And uh, then shortly after that, it was just like a real quick roller, and I kind of did an attack to go get that other guy that had gone off the front again and then just rolled past him. Um and then I just kind of kept on the gas. Like, I uh, just kept seeing the field get further and further away. Uh, I was kind of riding my own pace, riding my own tempo on the hills and everything. And it's so much easier with the 200 traffic. It was that real rough stuff where it's just super, super chunky. And it's kind of that uh, almost double track. Yeah. Um, and from what I heard of people that were in the pack, that was like a real hairy section. And so I think I probably gained a little bit of time being able to navigate that by myself instead of, like, trying to hold the wheel while the person in front of me is navigating. It, it was only, like, 40 minutes in. I was like, okay, this is either, uh, wow. you know, this is kind of the I, – I could probably make this stick. Um, and so it was a lot easier from what I heard from people in the pack to go through the 200 traffic by myself because, you know, I'm averaging – I think I averaged like 20.7 for the first half. Wow. And, uh, you know, the back of the 200 traffic, they're going like 10, 11 miles an hour. So, I mean, it, it, it can get a little hairy. Uh, and if anyone is was in the back of the 200 and is listening to this and I passed you too close, I'm really sorry. I felt really bad about a couple of those. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so I rolled into the first checkpoint and I told my wife to text me a number. And at that point, I was like, 12, 12 or 13 minutes up. Um, and then, yeah, just kind of 
hung in there the second half. It got, you know, it got a lot hotter. Uh, a couple neutral water hand-ups really saved me. And then, um, yeah, you know, if I, if I was, the last probably 10 miles was really crampy. I think almost everybody cramped that I talked to. Uh, but, yeah, other than that, you know, no, no major mechanicals, no flats, just incredible. Uh, went about as well as it could have gone, I would say. It was great. Good race. It was fun. So is this style of racing, um, gravel in particular, and this style of, of what's going on, first of all, the, the growth, we can probably both agree, has just been through the roof. Um, the sport Absolutely. is is definitely yeah. taking off. Is um, I, I, I don't know if this is kind of a cheesy question, but in your opinion, is gravel cycling saving the rest of the sport? Because we see, I don't know what, you know, maybe at your level you probably don't, but domestically I'm seeing a lot of races that are dwindling and things going down, but gravel is just taking off. Do you think this is something that could take us in the right direction? Well, I don't, I mean, it depends on how you define the sport, right? Like, I think gravel racing is probably contributing to, uh, you know, the decline in road racing. For sure. Yeah. I mean, there's a myriad of other reasons uh, why road racing is kind of tanking right now. But um, if you live in the Midwest and you want to ride a bike, like, would you rather ride on a highway, on a two-lane highway, like, and there's another one, you know, 10 miles south, and those are the two roads you have. Yeah. Or would you rather ride a gravel bike and, uh, you know, to... $30 gravel races every weekend or do a $100 youth stack road race that, you know, there's two the entire year in Nebraska. Wow. Yeah, so you guys are kind so, of... Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, it's pretty much a no-brainer. I And, uh, yeah, why would you buy a road bike if you live in the Midwest? Yeah. And it, and it seems like that's, I mean, and, and the culture has kind of that feel. I don't know, uh, it reminds me of the early days of mountain biking. We're still dealing with that kind of that grassroots culture yeah. where everybody's a little bit more relaxed. The sport is is definitely, you know, with anything becoming popular, um, there's that blessing and the curse. You know, it's I, I classify it with sometimes with music. You know, you're into a really cool band and you're following them and everything, and then all of a sudden they get signed to a major label and they're not cool anymore. Um, is, is, right. is, is that kind of inevitable to happen to gravel racing or is there some way to hold on to what you think is that true kind of grassroots feel? Um, I think it's the people, I think, uh, it's the individual riders that kind of like maintain that culture. I don't think any single event can change that. Um, sort of like, I mean, I know, I feel like it's probably overdone at this point, but the whole thing with the arrow bars and everybody wants to weigh in on that. Yeah. Uh, but, like, watching the growing pains of that and seeing individual riders deal with that. Like, there's an organization that just says, like, all right, you can't ride arrow bars. That, I think, would really kill gravel culture. If it was the fact that we are all grown adults and everybody who rides at Dirty Kansas, like, can have an opinion about that and not be like, you know what? screw you guys, like, I'm going to go start my own race and everyone's going to ride aero bars, and that's oh. the only thing. Uh, the fact that we're all having this discussion is what gravel's about, and, like, we're all going through the growing pains and making it, you know what I mean? Yeah. I think that's a huge part of it, instead of just being like, well, I don't know, we'll just let UCI figure it out. 
Wow. Okay, that was an. It, I was going to ask your opinion about that, but that is an even better response than you saying one way or the other. The fact that it is a decision that can be left up to the individual riders at this point in time, and if you think they're dorky, don't ride with them. If you think they're benefits for especially these long drawn out. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I, I noticed this. Uh, I was. I've been thinking about this. I was watching uh, the document, the Netflix uh, Formula One documentary, Senna. Have yeah. you seen that? Yeah. There's that part where the they're like in a riders meeting and the commissaire is kind of like, "All right, you guys want to go backwards through the chicane? Like, do all the riders think this is stupid?" And everyone's just like, "Yes." And yeah. I was like, "That's what we do on gravel. Like, <laughs> if enough people think it's stupid, we just don't. Like, it'll just kind of die out. You know, nobody does it. <laughs> it's awesome. I love it." So and so, how long have you been? How, what what got you first of all into cycling as a whole, and and how long ago was it? Um, I've been riding on and off for probably the last thirteen years. Um, my dad had a road bike, and he was in cycling a little bit. And uh, yeah, I did my first century when I found his road bike when I was fifteen. Yeah. And then uh, I've always kind of gravitated towards ultra-distance stuff, um, really pretty much until track. But uh, I think the discipline and the uh, detail-oriented kind of what, like, drew me into track, how, how specific and how disciplined you could be. I like that. Well, and, and that's a huge jump to go from those super long distances to all of a sudden, like I'm going to do something specific on the track. I've read, I've read the story about the, the grass track that you kind of got, I guess, you know, interested in some of those shorter distance kind of things. It's this, are these all myths or is this the, the real deal that that was indeed what happened? Or am I, am I reading some sort of a fairy tale here? No, that's totally what happened. hundred percent. I borrowed, I was like, I had, uh, planned a trip with my wife. We were driving out to San Diego. She's a, she majored in flute. She just got her doctorate and, um, in flute performance. And so we were driving out to San Diego for the national flute convention. And I wanted to hit up some velodromes on the way. My buddy had a surly steamroller. I rode that at the grass track, got certified, uh, did really well at that. And then with that certification, they let me race in Boulder and in San Diego. And I did really well on that. Uh, bought a Fuji, bought my first track bike, and then, you know, the whole thing kind of got started from there. Wow. Winning nationals and then uh, winning some other races in T-Town and stuff. But that's such a, like, a fast-forward thing. I mean, just to hear you say, yeah, I bought my first track bike, and then I, f- I jumped on to winning nationals, was, w- how does that transition happen? And, and is it, was it something that just was like, oh, my God, I get this, it's natural? Or what was the learning curve like going from that, from you know first track bike to national champion um well i mean spending the summer out in t-town was huge uh like just learning how to race out there kind of learning the culture um but i mean otherwise it's just a time trial like it's pretty straightforward you know like if you can put yourself in the box for four hours you can put yourself in the box for four minutes like it's the same (laughs) space that you occupy just a little bit you know more intense or less intense I, dude, I love how, and, and, and I'm not, I'm not belittling you by saying this. I just love how simplified you just made the entire experience. It's just like, uh, yeah, I can hurt for four hours, so I can hurt the same for four minutes. That is, that is, that is awesome. Yeah, I've been talking to a team. 
teammate about this, like how, uh, you know, like it's, it's the same thing. Um, my uh, teammate of mine, Christina Birch, has gotten into gravel lately. She did the DK100, and, uh, yeah, it's like it's very similar. And I think the fitness and the, um, the mental ability, like that carries over very distinctly to track 100%. Was the world record a surprise? It happened in a semifinal, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. No, it was qualifiers. Yeah, yeah, qualifiers. Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. Qualifiers. We we only run two rounds for individual pursuit. Even more um, than even more so then. I mean, it, it something like that to to beat that world record in a in a qualifier is what is you know what was that like? Was that a surprise? Uh, it was a little bit. Like it was kind of one of those things where uh, you know I ran. At 417 in Appledorn at Worlds that previous summer. Um, and I was like, oh, that's a pretty good time. You know, I'll go to altitude. I know August is a fast track. That's probably four seconds. So that puts me at 413. Um, and then at Nationals, I rode a four, like about three seconds faster than I had um, the previous year. And the previous year, I also peaked, you know, like tried to get my form up for nationals and the year before the world record, I just kind of like trained through it. So to shave three seconds off, uh, I was like, okay, you know, that's like roughly 410. Um, you know, that puts me within spinning distance of the world record. Yeah. But all those are so, you know, just like hypothetical. Um, and I definitely didn't think I was going to get it by three seconds. I thought I'd get it by like a couple tenths or something. Yeah. Like that was wild. I didn't think I was going to get it by that much. That that kind of tells me something about your your racing style. You were talking about the Kanza. You were talking about your tactics in there. Um, you know all that stuff happening really early in the event. This world record happens. Uh, you would think that you know somebody would be holding back to get to the to the finals and things like that. But you're doing it earlier on in the event. It tells me something about your style that you're just like I'm. You know, fucking, I'm going for it, and it's it's in that moment in that kind of a uh, attacking style if you will for sure i do tend to do that a lot uh, where i just like i go out too hot either on a gravel race or uh on a 4k and then i just you know kind of try and hang on um i will say on qualifiers the ip qualifiers like you pretty much have to go full send for the qualifiers because if you don't get into the top four 
yeah. based on your qualifying time, like you don't have a shot at a medal. So it's like you can't you can't really save a ton for the medal round. Like if I if I would have ridden the third fastest time, like I'm automatically out of the shot for a Pan Am champ. Okay. How did that first so, oh, go ahead. Oh, so it's just like especially with individual pursuit, there's more to the tactics uh, when you have three rounds, like in team pursuit, as far as like when you're going to try and have your quote, like best ride, but in individual pursuit, like your first ride had better be your best ride. Like you can't really save anything for finals. You just have to like send it all in the qualifiers and hope you have a little bit of gas left for finals. Okay. So how, how did that ride? I mean, I, I, Tell me if I'm not making too big of a deal out of this thing because a world record is, holy shit. Um, it's crazy, yeah. Yeah, and, and how did that change everything for you, or, or did it? Um, it was. It didn't ride at first. Uh, I remember like talking to um, a buddy who works at Speedwagon. Like after, he was like, "Oh yeah, I just did a." Uh, I just did a bunch of USAC races out in, like, Portland, and, you know, oh, it was a great weekend. I made three grand. I was like, sick, dude. I got a world record, and I got, like, a podium jersey and a weird little, like, Mexican Day of the Dead doll. Like, <laughs> that was it. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah, cool. Like, I'll, I'll head up to Portland and, like, you know, I guess I'll eat the Day of the Dead doll for breakfast. <laughs> uh, but it's helped, it's helped, like, me – gain more notoriety and like land, you know, just, uh, more individual sponsorships. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's definitely helped my career like throughout, you know, past that point. And, um, I mean, I feel like I'm still continuing to gain fitness. Uh, I don't feel like I've tapped out at all. Like I've, I haven't been doing it very, still haven't been doing it very long. Um, so I'm really excited to see what will happen this next season for sure. Like, I feel stronger than I did last season, definitely. Do you find yourself having to narrow down your focus at all, or is it still that you're able to kind of do gravel and then focus also on the track? I mean, you, you've, we hear the concept of somebody saying, you know, I, I could do multiple things fairly well, or I can do one or two things right. extremely well. Um, I feel like this year, especially this season, has been like, I got done with Worlds, and then it was gravel season, and I've been doing, like, these big volume weeks. Um, but because I've been doing those big volume weeks for so long, like, even before I got started with track, it's like I can keep doing that, do some, you know, more track-oriented, uh, like, ergo efforts, and still do gym three or four days a week. And, like, it works okay. Like, I have that capacity to handle that workload. Um, I think a lot of people... Uh, feel like I just grabbed a, you know, jumped off the couch and grabbed a track bike and then got a world record. But, like, I've been doing ultra-distance stuff for, you know, since, like, high school, college. And yeah. I think just having years of those big miles in your life makes it easier to uh, just handle a bigger workload, for sure. Do you need to be track-specific a lot more often? Do you find yourselves that the fact that you don't live right nearby one, that you have to travel more often, or is it a, are you able to compensate through other types of training? Um, well, the times that I've been to a track this season, uh, the times have been pretty good. Like, it's not like, uh, you know, I'm back to where my times were two years ago, even if I just, just jump in 
um, you know, in the middle of a bait training period. Yeah. Um, yeah, I find that a lot of it sticks pretty well. And sometimes, like, having the time off the track kind of helps you absorb some more of that technical stuff. Like, you just need time to sort of let your brain, let it, like, soak in a little bit, you know? Okay. Um, where does this, I, and this is a pretty heavy question to ask somebody, where does this all lead for you? Um, I know, uh, doing these incredible things on the track, these these things in this, uh, let's be, you know, to, to call it a growing sport would be the understatement of the year, these things in gravel. Um, where do you see yourself going with this path? Do you have an overall kind of plan of where to take it all? Not really. I mean, obviously, Tokyo is our big goal right now. Yeah. Um, but as far as past that, like, I don't know. I didn't, like, one, I didn't think this was going to be the goal. I was just like, seems to be going pretty well. Like, let's see what happens. And, uh, yeah, I mean, so far things have seemed to kind of work out. I just try to, I think if you have like a overall, overall goal of like, this is where I want to be in five years, then it's like, you can really have a lot of missed opportunities for maybe some other things that you you wouldn't have thought of initially. Wow, because, you know, usually you hear some, you know, I'm thinking of like a pro roadie or something like that who says, you know, I want to be in a world tour team in three years and I want to be on the start line of the tour in five years or something like that. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You're able to take it a little bit more of a relaxed feel, but I'm sure that there has to be some of those long-term objectives, just like you were talking about for Tokyo. Yeah, I mean, there's stuff that I've toyed with or just, like, ideas I have. Uh, I usually have a few. One of my, like, I, I wouldn't say a side project, but, like, something I do when I'm bored, I love looking at maps. So coming up with, like, uh, different ideas of routes or, like, uh, projects or events or something like that, um, that's always stuff I have cooking in the back of my mind. Um, yeah, we'll see what happens. I don't really have anything specific lined up right now. Okay. Um, how are things looking on the plan for Tokyo? I think they're looking pretty good. Um, yeah. So we need to be, with the UCI ranking, we need to be a top eight team. Right now we're 10th. Um, I think there were definitely, we made some mistakes last season. Like we're still a pretty young team. Fortunately, I think for us, like it's pretty easy for us to look at that and uh you know be like all right that was a mistake this is what we did wrong this is what we're going to do differently next year um and we've made all those right actions to correct those mistakes i mean the worst case scenario would be if we had a bunch of stuff go wrong and we didn't know why and then we can't fix it and then next year we're just like shit i hope that doesn't happen again yeah um so we have concrete things that we're doing and uh yeah, I mean, I think we're we're definitely in the hunt for sure. I think we've got a good shot. Right on. We got a good squad. Right on. So I I read also in my research about you that you classify yourself as a shitty mountain biker. Is this true? Oh, dude, hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's funny. The teammate that I was telling you about, Christina, is like, um, I she's multi-time national champ and like really really fantastic cross racer. And when she, when we ride gravel together, all like every time there's a corner, she's just like 30 meter gap. It's pretty embarrassing actually. And that's just like a 90 degree turn on like an open road. <laughs> uh, yeah. My bike handling skills are not very good. I'm really good at riding in a straight line. 
<laughs> Even that's probably debatable, depending on who you ask. <laughs> so there's got to be something about uh, the the style of riding that gravel is that separates itself from that of road and that of mountain biking. And is there something that you kind of think that there's a skill that many people who are new to the sport would need to, I don't know, dial in and focus upon or what makes it different than others? I think it's a different style of pedaling from road. Um, I also think it's a different, it depends on where you are, but I think the rollers in the Midwest, like really, uh, like sort of lend themselves to someone who can do like repeated efforts up those, you know, 30 second climbs. Um, and just learning how to ride, how to ride, you know, to maximize power, like for training and then how to ride to maximize average speed for racing. Because I think those are two, like, almost two completely different rides for me. Bicycling Magazine, I read the interview, called yeah. you the most interesting bike racer in America. Um, oh, God. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to ask, what do you think about that one? How does that one kind of sink in? Uh, it's a heavy title. I mean, <laughs> I'm fully aware that our lifestyle is... Uh, unique um but i feel like i I mean i i like it it's fun um i think it's part of like what makes me like being home and what keeps me motivated to train um i love and even my coach said this too he's like you just seem happiest when you're just like really working hard at home and uh just living living the farm life that's 100 percent true like i love I love everything we do at home and like um, that space. It's great. Is I, I talk but a lot. I, I, I also, sorry, I also fully realize it's very different from the way not only just most people live, but especially most bike racers. Definitely. Well, I also like to talk sometimes about people who get the joke. Um, yeah, you know, I, I've, I've, I've always been a fan of guys like Peter Sagan who seem like they're very serious about what they do, but they're not afraid to have a good laugh every now and then. And they, they sometimes see the fact that this is all a big deal, but it really, you can't take yourself so seriously. Are, do you fall into that category, you think? You do. Yeah, I, w- I think so. I mean, uh yeah, at the end of the day, it is like it's just bike racing, um, and there's lots of other, you know, important stuff. But like, if I'm in the middle of the workout, and even you know, if I'm in the middle of a training block, like absolutely, that workout is the most important thing I'm doing that day. Um, yeah, so I do take training very seriously, but I also take downtime pretty seriously too, and try to have a good time. Yeah. And that that also, you know, to loop it all back to where we started, that seems like it maybe was a part of what that gravel culture is about. And and to take it to something like the track world, which um, for those of us on the outside, the, the track world seems a little bit more staunch and straightforward, not as maybe as much as Barry. road. Is it is it is as bad as road, in your opinion? I don't know. I'm not very familiar with the road culture. Yeah. Uh, I've never raced on, like, a pro road team. Um, I've done two road races this whole year. Really? Like, one, one weekend of road racing. I did one road race and one crit in a weekend, and that's all I've done. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, that's what I like about gravel is, like, you get uh, guys that are there to actually race, 
and, you know, actually contend for top ten and, uh, you know, have arrow bars because of the aerodynamic advantage. And you also have people that, you know, their wrists get tired and they want arrow bars. And that's totally reasonable. Um, but there's also this common meeting ground where we can all do the same thing. And uh, it works. It's awesome. Do you, you like can make it how you can make it whatever you want. Do you like having the uh the I guess I don't want to call it an invasion but um, you know world two pro, tour pros coming to the events is that something that you welcome or is it like oh god we've been discovered? No, I think it's awesome. I also think um I I would say I'm a little surprised that more people haven't like started doing that um if you know another famous sports player was like oh i wake up and i eat an entire raw steak every day (laughs) and that is like that is the one thing i do every single day uh i think that's really important then like more people would do it but i think it's really interesting that more people haven't been like oh uh you know we've got some really fast guys coming out of gravel like obviously there's something to this uh, let's try and figure out what it is or like why, why this dillweed out of Nebraska with no road racing experience, like gets a world record. You know, you look at someone like Jack Bobridge or, uh, even Taylor Finney, it's like, it's pretty clear cut as to why those guys are super good. Um, you know, they had a lot of success in juniors. They had a lot of success in Europe, uh, going a lot of success on that traditional path. And then if there's someone that takes the non-traditional path, you should be like, oh, well, what, what happened? Like, what, why did this work? Um, so I think more people coming to that path, that gravel path, and trying to discover, like, what it is, how it works, why, you know, why it might possibly work, I think that's, that's awesome. I love it. The more people there, the better, as long as, uh, you know, I think there's enough people and enough culture going so far that it, it won't be like one group of individuals that can ruin it. I think it's bigger than that. Yeah. And it and it also seems like it's 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 getting people out, it's getting people competitive on bikes and it's allowing for more opportunities to create races. Um, I'm, I don't know if yeah. it's as bad where you are, but where I am getting road closures, getting permits, getting, you know, eight USAC refs and all that kind of stuff is just putting bike racing out of business. Hundred percent. I feel you, man. <laughs> what? Uh, you there? I think I might have lost Ashton for the last time. Ashton, you there? We'll try one more time. <laughs> Yeah, yeah are you still there? Yep, I'm, I am there. You know what? And, and before we hit our next valley, first of all, I just kind of, you know, one of one of the the listeners uh, asked before I even got everything involved, and I'm sure you're tired of answering questions about it. But um, what was the what no, was no, the no what was the inspiration for the stash and and uh, and is it truly aerodynamic, man? <laughs> we haven't tested it just because, like, my wife doesn't want me to shave it. I look really <laughs> bad without it. Um. I did it for No Shave November in college. Like, I did No Shave November in college, and then uh, the mustache was, like, the only thing that looked kind of good. Um, 
So yeah, I've had it coming up on seven years. My my, uh, I, that was the first contact I had with you. I remember I had a beard for mo- no shave November, and then I shaved it just down to the mustache. And I think I included on Instagram something like Perfect. that. I was channeling you, and I said, "I was like, holy shit!" And Ashton actually responded and said he liked the stash. So I, you know, I, I kept it for a while longer. But uh, my my Hell teammates, yeah. my teammates were all giving me shit about it. But. Um, <laughs> Don't listen to him. It looks great. Right on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, dude, you're on your way to uh, to get some get some racing in and things like that. First of all, again, congratulations on the great win this last weekend. That was so much fun to to you know to to be a part of and see. And I've got to get my ass down there and at least you know do maybe you even the shorter distance. <laughs> well, well, good and luck. There's lots of other like smaller gravel races too. Yeah. Like, it doesn't have to be DK. There's tons of other really good ones. Yeah, and that's the thing, and that's where it just seems like it's I, – I don't mean to say that, you know, in this holy kind of religious realm that it's saving cycling, but it is definitely something that is bringing new breath and new life and new people onto bikes, and it's I think it's a wonderful definitely. thing. So, yeah. Well, uh, dude, keep it up, man. Keep, keep us entertained and keep going fast. Yeah, I'll do my best, man. Appreciate it. Appreciate Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, no problem. Thanks. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.